Shumai Shumai guys and welcome back to the airwaves. You've tuned in to the Life to the Full podcast, the podcast that inspires and equips you to make the most of your time here on Earth. I am your host, Dav Morse. Today, I want to ask you the question, are you ready to live for a hundred years? I recently read a book called The Hundred Year Life by Linda Grattan and Andrew Scott. It was a sobering book in some ways and formalized some of the thinking I've done over the last few years, but there were some serious omissions which I want to share with you. The basic premise of the book is this. You've got a good chance of living to 100, and the way that we have worked over the last century isn't going to work going forward. The idea that we have a three-part life, education, working, retirement, can't work as long as we keep living longer. We need to change the way we work to make it more sustainable. Here's a little question for you from the book. If you live to 100 years, save 10% of your income, and want to retire on 50% of your final salary, at what age will you be able to retire? We'll get to the answer to that in a minute, but why would we need to ask that question? I'll read a few paragraphs from the book so that you can get the picture. We are in the midst of an extraordinary transition that few of us are prepared for. If we get it right, it will be a real gift. To ignore and fail to prepare will be a curse. Just as globalization and technology changed how people lived and work, so over the coming years, increasing longevity will do the same. Whoever you are, Wherever you live, and however old you are, you need to start thinking now about the decisions you will take in order to make the most of this longer life. The same holds for the companies you work for and the societies in which you live. Our lives will be much longer than has historically been the case, longer than the role models on which we currently base life decisions, and longer than is assumed in our current practices and institutional arrangements. Much will change, and this process of transformation is already underway. You need to be prepared for this and adapt accordingly, hence our ambition in writing this book. A long life could be one of the great gifts that those of us alive today enjoy. On average, we are all living longer than our parents, longer still than our grandparents. Our children and their children will live even longer. This lengthening of life is happening right now and all of us will be touched by it. This is not trivial. There will be substantial gains in life expectancy. A child born in the West today has more than a 50% chance of living to be over 105, whilst by contrast, a child born over a century ago had a less than 1% chance of living to that age. This is a gift that has been accruing slowly but steadily. Over the last 200 years, life expectancy has expanded at a steady rate of more than two years every decade. That means if you are now 20, you have a 50% chance of living to more than 100. If you are 40, have an evens chance of reaching 95. If you are 60, then 50% chance of making 90 or more. This is not science fiction. You probably won't live to 180, and we don't recommend you take up weird food fads. What is clear is that millions of people can look forward to a long life 
and this will create pressure on how they live and how society and businesses operate. Picture for a moment a young child that you know, perhaps your eight-year-old sister or ten-year-old daughter, perhaps a nephew or a young boy who lives nearby. You can see their wonderful childish enthusiasm and energy for life, and you can imagine their freedom from responsibilities and obligations. You probably found it fairly easy to think of an eight-year-old, but let us ask you to identify another age group. How many centenarians do you know? Perhaps you don't know any, or perhaps you can think with considerable pride of a grandmother who reached a hundred. But the very fact that you know so few and feel such understandable pride about those that you do reveals how exceptional it is. To understand this difference between eight-year-olds and centenarians, let's contrast the future-orientated data in Figure 1.1 with past data. Looking back to 1914, the probability that someone born that year would live to 100 was 1%. And that's precisely why you find it so hard to identify centenarians alive today. The odds were simply stacked against them. But in the year 2107, being a centenarian will no longer be a rarity. In fact, it will be the norm. And considerably more than half of those eight-year-olds you know will still be alive. Just realised this book was written eight years ago. Just realised this book was written eight years ago. So, in fact, you can imagine a 16-year-old and they will have the same chance of reaching 107 or 105 or whatever it is. So there's a pretty chance you're going to live to be almost 100, even if you were born before 2007. And if you were born before 2007, there's a good chance you know someone who is 16 or under. I'd encourage you to keep this in mind when you interact with them. So if you're wondering how long you'd have to work for in the above scenario, well, it's well into your 80s before you can stop working and retire. If you can't see yourself working in the way that you're currently working until you're 85, then something needs to change. The book goes into a few possible scenarios on how to structure your life to extend your working life, making it more sustainable. It talks about the importance of being able to learn new skills and change jobs as work evolves. Half of the jobs we think about today may be gone in 10 years' time, so we need to be nimble in the job market to be able to adapt. So how will you work if you have to work until 100? One of the main drivers for me behind doing this podcast is that I am passionate about designing a life and a lifestyle that I'm excited about living. When I was a teacher, life was fine. I didn't mind it for the most part, and there was even some fun things like trips to Japan involved. But I wanted more out of my life, so I left. Since then, I've been crafting a lifestyle I'm excited about living, one that gets me pumped up on a Sunday night thinking, yes, it's Monday tomorrow. I can't wait to get creating again. So when I think about my work life, I don't want to retire. I like having the option to retire if I want to, but I want to design a life for myself that I don't want to retire from. I want you to think about the question, what would I do if I knew I could never retire? For me, my life would look a lot the same as it does now. It helps that I'm also doing something that I will physically be able to do as my body ages. I'd like to, at some point, learn a trade like plastering, building, carpentry, electrician, plumber, etc. But I don't want to have that as my job and be forced to keep going 
ruining my body as I get older. If you're young and find yourself in a job like that, I want you to consider what else could you do that uses your mind more than your body. My work is knowledge work. I get to do lots of thinking for my work. I love that, and I love the fact that I'll be able to grow into that as I get older. I also think about the kinds of areas I want to be knowledgeable in. When I'm in my 80s and 90s, I want my knowledge and experience to be something that is valued by others and that can still bless others. So what could that be for you? The book also talks about balancing your life between productive assets, which it uses to describe valuable skills and knowledge, vitality assets, which are health and fitness, a balanced lifestyle, regenerative friendships, transformational assets, self-knowledge, diverse networks and openness to new experiences, and tangible assets like money and a house. Here are some questions for you to consider that go further than the book does. How can you design a life that you want to keep living until you're 100? Well, we've already looked at that. The important thing here is to start designing and crafting that lifestyle now. Don't wait until you're retired at 85 to start living your best life. How will you cope financially if you have to live to 100? One of the things that the book does admit is a limitation of their modelling is that it's assuming people's only income in retirement will be pensions. And this sobering extract about state pensions should be enough to make you start thinking of alternative incomes during retirement. And if you want to know more about how to succeed financially, go back and start listening from episode 12 through 16 of the podcast. The Disappearing Pension The most common economic issue discussed around the topic of greater life expectancy is the growing financial unsustainability of state pensions, especially in developed economics. Most rich countries have a form of state pension known as a pay-as-you-go. Under these schemes, current taxes are used to pay current pensions. No money is ever invested, unlike funded schemes where savings goes into a fund and then accumulates over time, and then pays out a pension depending on the investment performance and contribution. The problem with pay-as-you-go schemes is that people are living for longer and birth rates are declining. When birth rates decline, there are fewer workers coming through compared to those who are retiring. The result of these trends is lower taxes but more expenditure on pensions. If pensions policies remain unchanged, then the path of public finances is unsustainable and government debt is forecast to increase dramatically from its already high levels. In countries such as Japan, which has long life expectancy and where the birth rate has fallen very dramatically, the problem is already acute. Back in 1960, Japan had 10 workers for every pensioner and the dependency ratio was 10%. Under a pay-as-you-go pension, Scheme, this meant that 10 workers effectively split the cost of one pension between them. In 2050, the projection is that the dependency ratio will reach 70%, which means 7 pensioners for every 10 workers. As a result of these trends, it's clear that pay-as-you-go schemes in their current form are no longer sustainable. If the state pays out a pension of 30 to 40% of income and there are 10 workers for every pensioner, then a tax rate of around 3 to 4% on current workers pays the pension bill. However, in some countries, 
Already pensions have become more generous. People retire earlier and live longer, so fewer workers pay the bill. As a result, pay-as-you-go has operated as a form of elaborate pyramid scheme, Ponzi or Madoff scheme. That's damning words if ever I heard them. We have all been putting too little relative to what we have taken out. And like all pyramid schemes, this can only continue as long as there are an ever-increasing number of new members entering the scheme. But the falling birth rates in developed economies means this is no longer the case, and so the schemes are revealed as unsustainable. So if you're relying on the state pension as your only means of income during retirement, I am afraid to say things will not be the same by the time it comes for you to retire. The scheme is not sustainable, and you need to think about how are you going to fund your retirement apart from the state pension. When I think of funding my retirement, I have plans of retiring much earlier than pension age, state pension age in the UK, and so I'm not even bothered about the state pension. When I get it, it'll be an extra bonus to what will be hopefully a retirement income that is already paying my retirement costs from when I'm 50 or 55 because of the investments that I've made. The next question to consider is what are you doing to invest in your relationships? I often find myself thinking about how I can create a family culture that has my children spending a lot of time with us as we get older and bringing my grandchildren to play. And in fact, I did an episode on what kind of grandfather do I want to be back in episode 8, so give that a listen. I've also set it as a goal for myself to have friends in every decade of life. I want friends in their 20s, 30s, 40s, but also in their 50s and 60s and beyond. I can only see it as a good thing if you have those people in your lives that can speak wisdom into yours and people in your lives into whose lives you can speak your wisdom. What about physical health? The book does have two pages on the importance of maintaining physical health. I was going to go into it in a bit more detail here, but this podcast is already getting on a bit, so I'm going to leave it for now. I want to end at the end. What about the end? It's worth mentioning at this stage that whilst we've focused on how to make the most of your hundred years on earth, I want to open your eyes to the question of what comes next. As you get older, you can go one of two ways. You can start questioning what comes next. You can start to stare out into eternity and think, if there's anything after this life, I'm going to be experiencing it for a really, 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 really long time. Or the alternative is, your thought process can double down on what you already believe, that there's nothing at the end. If you keep feeding that thought process as you get older, then you're more likely to get ingrained in that way of thinking. If you continue to keep an open mind about life after death, you can start asking some more helpful questions. Even if you're convinced that there's nothing at the end of your 100-year life, can I encourage you to ask one of life's most important questions. What if I'm wrong? If you do believe there's life after death, what if you're wrong? Finally, I'll leave you with a thought. What are the implications for both parties for being wrong? Until next time, peace out. See you soon. Don't forget you can hit me up on Instagram, David Morse and Life to the Full Podcast with any comments or questions. Also, leave a review. 